Amidst all of life's busyness, it's hard to see the beauty and grandeur that's right in front of us. Greg Gilbert, in this book, Who is Jesus? By the way, I gave these out at Bible study. Uh, If you are a member or a regular attendee of this church, we have them for you for free. Uh, So definitely come see me, and they are in the office. Anyways, in this book, Who is Jesus? Greg Gilbert, the author, relays a story, um, one that Roger will appreciate. He relays a story of an experiment done by the Washington Post and a violin virtuoso. Uh, One of the best in the world. And this virtuoso went to play at a Washington, D.C. subway station just to see if anyone would notice. He played for 43 minutes. You can watch it all online. I watched about 15 minutes of it. Uh, He played six famous classical pieces. He's wearing a Washington Nationals baseball cap. He's wearing regular garb instead of his tuxedo or whatever he would wear. And out of the thousand plus people that walked by on their way to work, hardly anyone noticed the beauty of the music, the glory of the situation. This virtuoso had played before packed houses where the cheap seats were a hundred bucks. He had played before royalty, the crowned heads of Europe. And there he was playing all of these beautiful pieces for 43 minutes straight, these integral classical pieces at this subway station, and all that on his three-and-a-half-million-dollar violin, handcrafted by Stradivarius in 1713. Well, so much of life is like this, Greg says. Amidst all the stuff of life, the busyness, the bills to pay, the soccer games to go to, all of the stuff we got to do, all of the urgent, the beauty and the grandeur of the life, of life just kind of gets passed by. Same goes for Jesus Christ. So those of you visiting with us today, if you know yourself not to be a believer, uh, you know, you might have heard of the sound bites that might come from Jesus's mouth. You might hear about the various debates that people are having about this Christ. You might even know one or two stories about this supposed Jesus Christ, but yet you've never taken time to examine them. See what they really say. And see what they have to do with your life. And Greg says that it would be a tragic mistake, just as it was for those passerbys as they passed by this virtuoso playing this marvelous music. He says it would be a tragic mistake to dismiss Jesus as an ordinary man. Or even just an extraordinary man. That too would be a tragic mistake. But today, if you let it... Our sermon passage today helps us see the beauty and grandeur of this Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there now. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a young church facing some difficulties and false teachings that sprang up from within the church. Some folks were saying that their new life, you know, you Christians, your new life in Christ... It's not really the full life at all, actually. And so Paul writes this letter to set things straight. You have everything you need in the Supreme One, Jesus Christ. And he encourages them to persevere in their faith. And it opens very typically, as the letters would in that age, it opens up with a thanksgiving and then a praise and a prayer. 
And in the prayer, he lists the benefits of salvation. Look, I want you to know the full life that you have. Chapter 1, if you look there over in verse 11, just skim it there, chapter 1. He says, look, here are the benefits you have. God has qualified you for salvation already. He has indeed delivered you, past tense, out of darkness. And past tense, transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom present, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now wanting everyone to be clear who this son is. Who this son is in his fullness. He writes there in 1 verse 15 to 20. Look there, I'll go ahead and read it right now. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from, of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What drives this passage very clearly is the supremacy of Christ. So that's like the main topic of today's sermon, the supremacy of Christ. Point number one is the supremacy of Christ as revealed in his divinity. The sermon today has four points. And it kind of goes like in an A, B, B, A fashion, if you're familiar with poetry, or even if you care. Point number one, the supremacy of Christ as revealed in his divinity. You know, every story has plot points. And every story takes its cue from his story, that is God's story. And in the story of redemption found here in scripture, the plot points move forward the story that uplifts the supremacy of of Christ as Lord of the universe and Savior of his people. The Old Testament tells of our need of salvation, telling readers of how God created the universe, everything in it. He created the world. He created yourself to be in a good relationship with God, a perfect relationship with God. And just three chapters into it, the Bible tells us of how man destroyed this relationship by sinning against their very own creator, God. They had great disregard and even disdain for their creator. They wanted really to live their own way instead of God's way, the master's way, the Lord's way. And in so doing, they bring death and they bring God's judgment upon themselves. And so we need to be saved. That's the story, that, that's the plot point that begins there just a few chapters into the Bible. Enter in Christ. What the Old Testament promises, the New Testament fulfills. And it tells of the Savior's arrival, his victory over sin and death, his defeat of Satan, as the Savior takes on flesh to die the death of sinners on the cross, bearing the wrath that only man deserved on behalf of every sinner who would ever repent and believe and turn to him to believe on him for salvation. This here is the exaltation of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. And this story lifts it up. The God-man. He who rescues people according to the will of God. And then at the conclusion of the story in Revelation. 
you know, who is seen to be sharing the very throne of Yahweh? It is Christ, the slain lamb who receives all the praises of the universe. It goes to him. The exaltation of Christ. Through the praise of his created universe. But you know what? Not everyone has who has claimed to Christ claims that he was both God and man. Most people understand his manhood. You know, he lived and he died. Where people want to take issue with is his divinity. And perhaps the most famous and infamous false teacher in the history of the church was a 4th century man named Arius. Who claimed that Christ enjoyed uh, a special place amongst creation. But at the same time, he was just a created being, finally, at the end of the day. And so one of his most famous lines was, there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not. In other words, he had a beginning. He was a created being. And today this belief is still around in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they hold to really Aryan views of Jesus Christ. There was a time when he was not. He was at the end of the day, he was a created being, just a man. But this doesn't only fit with the redemption story, right? I mean, from beginning to end, you have the exaltation of the God-man. Uh, it doesn't even fit with the text that explain God's history of redemption here. And today we, we can look at one of them. So go ahead and look there at verse 15. It says really plainly in verse 15, he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So again, Paul has spoken of the many blessings that come through Christ because God has delivered us from darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his son in whom there is for us presently redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then in our passage, he defines definitively, okay, definitively who this son is. He is the image of the invisible God. God's invisibility is a fact, very, very clear, a fact presented in the Old Testament, a fact presented in the New Testament. So you can think of the great doxology, for example, First uh, Timothy one seventeen, a verse that I read often in the closing of, this, of the service. It says there, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible. So there you're getting the invisibility. Uh, and then in Hebrews 11.27 there, it talks about how God is also invisible. It talks about how Moses, he, he, he left Egypt to, quote, bear the reproach of Pharaoh or the king. And how was he able to move forward in faith? It says, because he trusted in God as if he saw visibly him who is invisible. That's what it says there. As if he saw him who is invisible. And this Colossians 1.15 passage says that in Christ, the invisible God has now become visible. He's been made visible. He is the image of God, right? No need to look any further. If you look for God, he says, no need to look. In him is the image of God. And this fits with biblical passages. They think of John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen God, right? Because he is invisible. But then he goes on. He says, the only begotten Son, that is, the unique Son, the unique Son, has made Him known. He has disclosed Him. His final revelation, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The imprint, so that you would know, so that we all would know. Man, according to Genesis 1, is made in the 
likeness of God, it says there. But Christ is the image of God. Right? Man bears some likeness of his character, designed to display his character to the world. But Jesus is the full revelation of God and his character to us. And, you know, this, again, if you're, if you're exploring Christianity and you're reading through the gospel accounts, his divinity is the only way that really makes sense of it all. So let me tell you one story. I'll tell you a few stories. But the first one from Mark chapter 2. In Mark 2, there's a story where a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. This paralyzed man, he knows that Christ can heal him. And so he gets his friends to bring him basically on a stretcher to Christ the healer. And they go to the house and the place is so packed that they've got to climb on top of the roof. And they're digging a hole into it. And finally they let, lower him down on a stretcher. And upon seeing him, you know what Jesus does? He doesn't raise him. He doesn't heal his body first. Instead, he heals his soul and says, My son, your sins are forgiven. And you know what the Jewish haters of Christ are mumbling to themselves, sort of on the side as they're observing this healer do this marvelous work? They say, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the whole point of the Gospels, right? That's the point. This here is the very God himself, God the Son, taken on flesh. And then as the gospel accounts just continue on. So Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes around, he's doing miracles, healing the sick, healing the lame, uh, healing the blind. And in one story here in this chapter, he raises the dead. And the witnesses to that miracle, you know what they say? They say, surely God has visited his people. Sort of in passing. They don't even know. They don't even realize what they're saying, right? But that's the whole point. They have the blinded eyes. And Christ goes around opening the blind's eyes. So that they would behold exactly what they're saying. And then in John, for example, right? Just think about all the accounts of why uh, the Jews wanted to kill Christ. Some people say it was because he was calling other people names. You know, you, you sons of vipers and things like that. Uh, but but the, to the legalists, right, the Jews who follow the law strictly, they don't go around killing people because of name-calling. They, they, had a, they had a certain subset of rules that warranted killing or stoning. One of them was blasphemy. And here, Christ in the book of John goes around a number of different times claiming to be equal with God. One of them is in John 8. It says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, before the greatest Hebrew of Hebrews ever was, I am. Clear allusion to Exodus, where Yahweh makes himself known, the great I am. And here Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I am. And it says there, at this, that is making himself equal with God, they picked up stones to stone him. They know exactly what he's doing there. He is blaspheming the name of God. By claiming to be God himself, by equating himself, putting him on the same exact level of the great Yahweh. This here is God, the invisible, made visible. He is the image of God. That's point number one. The supremacy of Christ as divine. He is God the Son. Point number two here. We see his supremacy as seen as his position over creation. So if the first point was in relation to God, his relation to God, he is the very image of God. Now he looks at his supremacy as seen over creation. Look there in the rest of 15. 
It says, He is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 15 has been used as ammunition against the deity of Christ, and they say, well, look, uh, it says very clearly he's the firstborn over all creation, which means he must be the first created being. He's the first of all created things. I mean, no doubt firstborn is used to describe, you know, first of many children as in priority, as in priority of birth, you know, number one and then number two. But firstborn has other meanings too, like sovereignty of rank. That's what Paul's getting out here. So take Psalm Psalm 89, verse 27. This is what God says. He says, I have made David my firstborn. So if anyone's going to claim that Christ is the, is the firstborn, the first created being, well, what do you do here? Because he, he's saying that David is the firstborn. Is it Jesus or is it David? Anyways, he goes on and talks about sovereignty of rank. I have made David my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's talking about sovereignty of rank here. And the context makes that exceedingly clear. He is the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn here is sovereignty of rank. That's what's going on in Colossians 1.15. Christ is the firstborn telling of Christ's sovereignty and even telling of his eternity. This is a way that you talk about eternity in Scripture. So in Proverbs 8, for example, 22 to 24, it talks about how God had set up Christ before anything was. Speaking of his eternity, that's just what you do in speaking and describing these things. But besides that, the context of Colossians actually makes that very clear as well. Why is he the first part? Look, look there in uh, 15 and 16. Because all things were created by him. It says for, because, that is the ground, the reason. By him all things were created. He possesses sovereignty and then also displays his sovereignty in creating all things. This is proof positive of his divinity. By him all things were created. And so he rightfully has the title Agent of Creation. John 1, verses 1 to 3 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's made all things. And so if the Arian or the Jehovah's Witness, if they say... Oh, well, Jesus is the first created being through whom all things were made. Well, if he is a created being, he cannot be the maker of all things. He created all things, it says there, very plainly. And if you just read this, you know, again, if you were to do this later, you see how the emphasis really is on all things. He's referring to everything, all things, all things, all things. Christ is the originator of all things. He is before all things, it says there, prior to all things, and he even sustains all things. You know, the fact that Christ is the agent of creation, the fact that Christ is the reason why you live, has huge implications on our lives. It means fundamentally that we are dependent people. We are dependent people. It means, it means that he is superior and we are inferior. But so many times we live in, in our lives in such a way where we really think that we are superior. Um. You know, there is this uh, a gut reaction in us, which I think I mentioned before, 
there's this gut reaction in us to stick it to the man, right? So any of you anti-authoritarian people, you know, you love punk music, you love gangster rap, all sorts of stuff. If you love Jack Black in his movie, he says he suffers from stick it to the mandiosis, right? That's, a, that's oftentimes what we suffer from. That's us thinking we are superior when in reality we are the inferior ones. And then not only that, but, you know, the ways in which we assign meaning to this world, we say those things are superior. So, you know, what, what's this kind of stuff that you're living for these days? Your large bank account, your comfort and security that you have banked your whole entire life on, those relationships that you can't stand to live without. Maybe you need to control your children. Maybe you can't stand the way your parents control you. That's evidence here of you needing to get out from underneath something and say, no, I am, instead of Christ is. And we assign meaning to these things, chasing after them as if they finally bring us meaning. I mean, some people worship sex, pleasure. Who do you think designed the body? Some people worship relationships, going after this one or that one. I mean, who do you think God create? Who do you think created community? I mean, God lives in community, right? God is a God who is three in one: the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But yet, there is one God. Some of us assign and chase after beauty, maybe even after our own selves, suffering from eating disorders, as if the beauty that we assign to ourselves or we assign to the world is what's ultimate. But even the ideal beauty, you know, these things reflect the beautiful one, the creator. He alone defines this beauty and it could, because he is the superior one. So to assign all of these things ultimate superiority is really just kind of living a life, a deluded life. He is the superior one. We are the inferior one. All the stuff that he has made is dependent upon him as he holds everything together, the passage says just testifies to the fact that God is superior. Look at what he has made, all these things, all these things that depend on him. It says there that uh, uh, it speaks of, look there in verse 16, right? All things were made uh, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, so the seen world and the unseen world, right? All of these things are dependent upon him. And then he turns towards dealing with the Colossians and their particular problem. You know, people were advo- encouraging them to go on and worship uh, angels. They said, no, really, if you want the full Christian life, you need to worship angels. And here it seems like Paul is addressing this. You know, even those things that they're saying that ought to be worshipped, those things too are dependent and subjected to the superior one that is Christ Jesus. So whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those are like the order of heavenly beings. So even those things that people are telling you to worship, all those things fall underneath the superior one that is Jesus Christ. I mean, some of us come from homes uh, that uh, would encourage idol worship or something like that. Worship of the heavenly beings, the worship of the sun and the moon or this kind of God and that kind of God. Even ancestral worship and their spirits. He says here, everything is dependent on Jesus. Those things are nothing compared to the superiority and the supremacy of Christ. 
But this is what humans do. I mean, in Romans 1.21, it says, although men knew God, they knew the one God, they knew that he existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And their hearts were darkened. That's what we're guilty of. That's what the Bible says that uh, man leans towards. It's like the gut instinct here is to assign the glory to another thing and steal God's glory. We are glory thieves, as one author has put it today. And we do not thank God. We do not honor God. We don't give him the glory. I mean, how many of us today, okay, if you, if you call yourself a Christian, how many of us today woke up this morning and genuinely, genuinely thanked God that he has given us life and breath for today? Genuinely thanked him. In recognition that he's created everything, and we know in the beginning, for us to enjoy. How many of us here are giving thanks to him and honoring him as God? So many of us know that we don't do these things. And this, the Bible says, is sin. Because we as the inferior, inferior ones pretend like we are superior and therefore rob the glory of God. But it goes further here. God calls us not only to glory and give thanks to God, he calls us to live a life worthy of him, as we've seen in the past year. He says that everything has been made for him. That is us today. We've been made for this great and marvelous God. So still underneath point two, we see here that Jesus is supreme as all things were made for him. All things were made for him. Look there in 16, all things were created through him and for him, it says. Christ here is the goal of creation, the terminus of creation. Whether the stuff of the seen world or the stuff of the unseen world, earthly beings, heavenly beings, everything you can possibly think of has been made for him. Which means he possesses the rights to your life. He possesses rights as far as his rule extends. And that is over everything. So we are not only to give thanks to God and honor to him for our existence and all the stuff that we enjoy. We're all supposed to live all of our lives to his good pleasure. Our very selves, our very lives, with our breath, in our work, all of our relationship, the money that we have, our cars, our clothes, our families, our children. We're even supposed to use our words for him. Everything we have is to be used for his glory. You know, this is so different than what the world would tell us about our existence. Um, you know, so take evolution, for example. I mean, if evolution is true, that means that we came from matter plus energy and random chance and poof, you know, here we are. And that's really it. If that's really what happened, I mean, if you're a Christian, if you just stepped inside that world of what it looks like to really just be a product of matter and chance and energy. What becomes of life? There's no real purpose. There's no real end. There's no real meaning. And even the meaning that you assign to life, you know, that might change in 50 years, it might change in a thousand years. So what then is meaning? Everything really just becomes purposeless. But what if, if you're visiting with us today and know yourself not to be a Christian, what if we've been created intentionally with meaning? 
intentionally with significance, intentionally with the purpose of living to glory in and bring glory to the Creator, and then to display this glory towards one another. What if we let all of His rights extend into our lives, even though oftentimes you know our temptation is to be held up in our own little fortress, God's not touching this. But what if we just recognized His rights in our very own lives and then submitted to His marvelous reign and rule and let kind of the ethic of the kingdom, the morals of Christ, Christ Himself, rule in our lives. So instead of taking life, we protect it. Instead of taking other things, whether it be the money of others, the position of others, or using men and women for selfish pleasure, we then seek out to be a blessing to other people. Instead of tearing down others with our words, we seek to build each other up with Christ-like words. I mean, wouldn't you want to live a life like that? Where Christ rules? I mean, this is the kingdom of Christ. Where Christ is the king and he leads in all of these things. He seeks to be a blessing to other people by dying on the cross for sinners, by saving us. And how amazing is it that his rule is being made known here on earth presently so that we could see it in the church. So it says there, he is the head of the church. That's his rights are being extended to, in fact, they already exist over each and every one of us, but they're being made known, it's being made visible in the local church where Christ is Lord and we submit and follow this marvelous Savior. So friend, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a, a Christian, what keeps you from submitting to this Lord? To your maker? Do not let it be your sin, you know, thinking you have too much. Because Christ has already provided pardon. Right? His law of grace and mercy is present and he has signed it with his very own blood. Free pardon for everyone who turns for from living for themselves, thinking they're the superior ones, and then turn towards Jesus Christ in recognition that he is the superior one, the supreme one of all, the very maker of you, the one who owns you, the one who claims rights over you, and everything you're lo- you are involved in in your life. What are you waiting for? Submit to this great superior king, and you will find new life in his kingdom. Repent of your sins, and you will have, possess, presently, Forgiveness of sins and redemption. Point number three. The supremacy of Christ over the new creation. Point number one, you're looking at the supremacy of Christ and his divinity, kind of like a big picture of the whole entire passage. How is that made known? It's made known because as he is sovereign over the creation. That's point number two. And then it moves to him being supreme and sovereign over the new creation look there in verse 18 he is the head of the body of the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead so not only is he supreme over creation here he says he's supreme over the new creation and the question that we ought to be asking was why is there even a need for a new creation if he's already made everything well if you think back to what i said earlier the story of redemption is that man had fallen Sin had entered into the world and there was a great revolt in the heavens and on the earth which led to sin entering into God's good world. And with all the evident sin in the world, 
then as well as now, we ought to be crying out for the Creator to do something. To make things right, to reconcile all of the stuff that has gone wrong on account of us. And the wonderful news is that He does. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, it says there. So His rule extends to the seen and the unseen worlds, but nothing can stop His reign. So if you imagine, God creates everything, the whole entire universe, and then man rebels against God. Bringing in darkness, covering the world with this shroud of darkness where we can't really find our way through anything over the entire world. And there it still says that Christ is sovereign over all things, but how marvelous is it that his reign cannot be stopped. So he creates everything, man rebels against him, the world is shrouded in darkness. But then by his grace, Christ enters into this very darkness to show that he is still sovereign over the realm of the dead. He's sovereign over all things. He's already shown that. In the story of redemption, man sins, brings sin into the world. And Christ says, no, this is not going to stop me. And he enters into it to taste the death and darkness. To show his invincibility. To show he really is sovereign. Sovereign over creation. Sovereign over new creation. The invisible God has been made visible in Christ. And being made visible, he proves his invincibility by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead to show nothing's going to stop me. So in every step of the way in the salvation history as given to us here in God's word, which can be trusted, he proves himself invincible. He is the firstborn of all creation. He also is the firstborn of the dead. That in all things he might be preeminent, it says. Creates all things. And every step of the way, demonstrating himself to be the sovereign one, the Lord of all creation. That in all things, he might be preeminent. Which brings us to point number four. Which kind of brings us back to point number one. The supremacy of Christ in everything. 18 again says that in all things he might be preeminent. This here is the climax of the section. Brings us back to where Paul started, the person of Jesus Christ. He is indeed God the Son. And the reason for his supremacy is laid out very clearly. For, here's the reason, for the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, in the Old Testament, God was always looking for somewhere to make his presence known. He did it in the tent, he did it in the tabernacle, he did it in the temple. And in the arrival of Christ, he makes it fully known. His full presence was pleased to dwell there in Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of his nature, where the full presence of God is known. It's amazing, you know, in this chapter here, or in this section, uh, you can just flip back, I mean, just... uh, Look at 15 and just sort of survey what's going on here. And you know how they teach you to learn prepositions? Uh, at least when I learned prepositions, you know, they had the block of cheese. And then there was, there was the mouse would go through the cheese and on top of the cheese. And he's before the cheese and under the cheese and he's over the cheese. Um, he's not saying that, that uh, Jesus is the mouse here. And that the world is his cheese. But you learn so much 
about Christ, his person, right? By all of these prepositions from 15 to 20. And it's all on purpose. Drawing our attention to Christ who is supreme. He says what he is. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 18, he is the head of the body that is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then look at all the things. You know, it's like you think cosmic tour of who this Jesus is as he's created all things for his glory in the seen and the unseen world. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, in the heavenly realms. All things were created through him and for him. He is prior to all things. He's before all things. And in him, everything holds together. And then in 20, and through him to reconcile all these things to himself, whether on heaven or in, on the earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. This verse, this, this, this passage here is one of the most famous passages that upholds the person of Christ. And, and we see why. He's just giving us this cosmic tour of who this great and marvelous God is, the one who is supreme. And of course, talking about his person, we must then talk about his work there. Verse 20. He not only created all things, but even after sin enters the world, through his cross, he reconciles all things to himself. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross. So with the great revolt in heaven and the great revolt on earth, the question is, who's going to put everything right? In comes Jesus, who reconciles all things through the blood of his cross. That's how he fixes everything. That's how he squashes the rebellion that goes on in our own hearts and even in the heavens and brings order to the universe. Order is restored through the instrument of the blood of his cross. So not only do you see the superior of Jesus Christ, you see the importance of the cross. Through those two wooden beams, he reconciles everything to himself. As P.T. O'Brien says, the universe is again under its head and cosmic peace has returned. You know, on this note, some people want to read Universal Salvation. As in God reconciles, as in forgives everybody, he redeems everybody. Uh, we shouldn't read that here. We should think not universal salvation, but a universal pacification. Think universal pacification when you read here, he reconciles all things to himself. I mean, it can't be universal salvation. Paul has a category for those who will not be saved. Look there in one twenty-three. He encourages the church there in 21, you who were hostile in mind, giving yourselves to evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, Oscar next week is going to talk about uh, reconciliation as in forgiveness. He gets to that here. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith. So Paul clearly has this mind that not everyone is saved. You must persevere if you are to be saved. But look over at 2.13. Look over at 2.13. You, you get more of this understanding of universal pacification here. And it says there, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right, we get that. That's the church. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now get this. 
He disarmed the rulers. That is, you know, the heavenly beings. And authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So here, it's, it's not that there is a reconciliation of these authorities to him, as in they are forgiven. He triumphs over them by putting them to open shame, by mocking them and saying, no, you can't do anything to me, because I am the supreme one. And all this happens through the blood of his cross. So do not think universal salvation here. Think universal pacification. Through the blood of his cross, those hostile to God in the unseen world are disarmed. They lay down, they throw down their weapons in defeat because Christ has triumphed over them. He pacifies these rulers. says he puts them to open shame. And all those with Christ... So you got those who stand against Christ. Now all those with Christ boast in this cross. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Is that all you got? Is that all the rebel rulers have to throw at Jesus Christ? So even this boasts of the superiority, the supremacy of Christ on his cross. And mind you, too, in light of this, his reign may be freely accepted or made to be enforced imposed on those who would rebel against him. So we think of Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee, not just some, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whether through subjugation, so Christ making his kingship known over his enemies and rebels, or through joyful submission in recognition for who he is. And so he calls everybody. To repent of your sins and believe on him, the supreme, superior one. The one who is indeed preeminent. The one who is over all things, through whom he has created, God has created all things. The one who is prior to all things and who holds all things together and for whom all things are made. So friends, I pray that you are not letting the stuff of life crowd out the beauty and the grandeur of this Christ who is supreme, the one who's created you to be in relationship with him and to worship him and to live a life worthy of his great name. Who will you serve? Will you serve yourself as superior or Jesus Christ the King? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the superior one. We thank you, God, that we are not finally sovereign. Because if we were, Lord, this world could never be saved. Father, we recognize that we struggle even to keep our own lives together. Or even to keep the the lives that we want to live together. And we confess that you alone are the supreme sovereign one who rules over all things. Lord, we pray in light of that fact that we sincerely would want to live a life worthy of your great name. That in every aspect of your life, your reign and rule would be made known. And that we would submit all areas of our lives to you. Father, we pray that by your Spirit's power, you would help sift through the areas of our lives where we are still clinging to. Wanting to rule over them as if we were king, as if we were wiser, as if we were more powerful, as if we had more knowledge, as if we had more wisdom. 
Lord, we pray that you would humble us and cause us to see that you are our great God in whom there is salvation, in whom we, in whom we can trust. And we thank and praise you that in you there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. In your great name we pray. Amen.